chapter 11 is where we've come to. And before we jump into that, I will just kind of update you on a few things as you're getting settled. As um, I want to thank all of you for sending me a lot of different information, which is really good. And I um, have a chance to look through uh, uh, quite a bit of it and uh, not all of it, but quite a bit of it. There's so much going on and so much happening in the world that we live in. I don't know if you caught this one in the Detroit News. And I, I cover this stuff because we're in the book of Revelation, so it's relevant. But in the Detroit News, the Lions' preparation for camp in pandemic includes education, technology, and robust testing. And this is what it said. Additionally, the league is utilizing technology to help with contact tracing. During the call, Quinn from the team showed his wristband, one of three options that team personnel will have the option of wearing. The microchip, microchip devices will track proximity and the duration of close contact between people wearing the sensors, alerting individuals both visually and audibly in real time while uh, logging the data for team and league use. The contact tracing also will be utilized by the league, NFL, to determine which players will need to be quarantined in the case of a positive virus test. If someone tests positive, they go back to the contact tracing data and they see how long those people have been near each other and it's uh, really decided for us. In other words, they're saying that uh, it's decided for us who will be quarantined uh, at that point. And so very interesting stuff um, happening. Uh, and I know y'all think I'm crazy, but I, this, this week I get in my car Tuesday morning, turning Christian radio on, or it was actually already on, and they were doing a NPR segment, you know, and they were talking about the third-party apps um, that they're trying to really move on and get people to use. And one of the articles was talking about the issue with it is um, that, you know, people, not enough people voluntarily use those things. And so we, they, they're evaluating whether we would need to do like China did, which is make it mandatory. Um, but again, the third-party app is something you would have on your mobile device. And so wherever you go, your mobile device is communicating and tracking who you're near and all that kind of stuff so that they can then determine uh, who you've been near. So you could be at Walmart and me and you hanging out near the uh, produce too long together. And then, you know, a week later you test positive and then they ding my app that I was near you. And now I got to get quarantined. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> stuff like that. Um, very interesting as we are moving through the book of Revelation, eventually approaching chapter 13. Why do we care? Because all of the enhancements in technology are the framework for where we will begin to see things go or the world will see things go during the tribulation in the global government, which then has the tech technological ability to control a population and how that population interacts with, um, with, with just society as, as a whole, the capital system or whatever kind of monetary systems there are out there, um, the population will have to then have a mark in order to participate in those things, not if you have any idea what I'm talking about, okay, which we'll get more into some of the new developments when we get into chapter 13 and we begin to talk about the mark of the beast. We'll get into those things then. Uh, as far as going to a cashless society, um, the global reset, part of what they want to do is that, and we see the world moving in that way. Many countries have begun to um, step down certain actual currencies, denominations of currencies, in order to begin to phase them out. 
um, to move towards digital currencies. Um, so those things are actually happening in the times that we live in, which is nothing to be freaking out about, just things to be excited about, because all it means is that God's word is true. Even if man don't know what they're doing, God already knew what they were going to do before they thought it up to do it, which tells us that the Bible says the prince of the power of the air who now works in the sons of disobedience is the one who's leading those who are not born again and do not have the spirit of God in them, okay? So scripture just continues to come to life. Speaking of scripture coming to life, one more time, I want to remind you of what it said at the end of chapter 9, where it says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, verse 20, did not repent of their, the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which neither see nor hear nor walk. Um, the idols are made by the hands um, but it's actually the worship of demons. Remember, we talked about that demons are behind the things we make. So your iPhone is made with the hand. Um, obviously, the enemy loves using the iPhone. The iPhone is an amazing tool for us and him. <laughs> but verse 21 is the, the, the big verse I want to remind you of. Notice it says, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, and their sexual immorality or their thefts. Remember, I told you that pharmakia was the word for sorceries, um, the administering of drugs. We've talked about that over and over and over. And now also um, the word for sexual immorality, pornea, uh, however you want to pronounce that, um, it speaks of all type of, uh, types of sexual immorality, even the worship of idols, uh, you know, through the use of sexual immorality. All of that's tied in there, drug use and sexual immorality tied together. Very interesting that I began to tell you last week, and I want you to Nod if you remember me saying this. Remember last week when I said, I made a comment that pedophilia is today where homosexuality, homosexuality was 10 years ago. Anybody remember that? Okay. Therefore, in the near future, pedophilia will be as normal and accepted as homosexuality. That's where we're actually going. And many people don't have a hard time um, All right. Many people have a hard time dealing with that. I hear something that I must stay focused. Um, very difficult time dealing with that. Of course, um, the lady who was uh, an associate of one of the famous pedoph pedophiles that was arrested and, and committed suicide or murdered uh, is now uh, releasing names. There are names going out of people who had participated um, in some of the things that he did and even spent time in his private island. Uh, names like, you know, politician names and people like that, um, which doesn't surprise me because the, one of the politicians that was named was committing adultery in the Oval Office, Bill Clinton, and lied about it. So for him to lie about spending time with a known pedophile doesn't really surprise me much. Um, but, say, but this stuff is a lot more widespread than maybe we realize and it's coming out. And I want to really quick just kind of give you a taste of the mentality that's out there and where it's going, and then we'll get into our study for today. So really quick, I want you to listen to the comments on this video. According to current research, pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual orientation, just like, for example, heterosexuality. And most of us feel discomfort when we think about pedophiles. But just like pedophiles, we are not responsible for our feelings. We do not choose them. But 
we are responsible for our actions. And we must make a decision. It is an our responsibility to reflect and to overcome our negative feelings about pedophiles and to treat them with the same respect we treat other people with. We should accept that pedophiles are people who have not chosen their sexuality and who, unlike most of us, will never be able to live it out freely if they want to lead an upright life. We should accept that pedophilia is a sexual preference. Yeah. Now, it goes on as another lady comes up with even more alarming stuff that she says, and uh, you can take that down. And so what, what they want is for us to eventually accept this as normal, and then pedophiles will have rights as though they will be able to work in certain environments, and we won't be able to, if you will, discriminate against them. So if someone wants to be a, a pedophile but work in the school system, work in the, um, in the uh, pediatrics or anything like that, they would then have the right to be able to do that. And they believe that the children should have the right to decide for themselves and to be exposed to it so they can choose. Um, the problem, anyway, you know what the problem is. So, <laughs> and if you, you, as an adult, if you can go do what you want to do, okay, but you, you don't just, God, in, in God's perspective, that's a sin. You really don't have that right. You're infringing upon things that he says are not good. But to then uh, force that upon children is just not the society I want to live in. Um, we live in the last days. They're taking us and our society beyond almost Sodom and Gomorrah, in my opinion. We live in times, it's really weird, you know, a lot of things that are happening uh, all over the world. And even, even uh, in China now, the, the locust plagues I've been telling you about have now moved into that area, um, as well as a lot of natural disasters they're experiencing. So just interesting times that we live in, um, which brings us now back to the word, uh, Revelation chapter 11, which is where we are today. So just to keep you informed, and as we continue through the book of Revelation, we'll touch on a few things here and there. Um, that uh, are happening, there's almost a kind of a regime change effort in our country, which is very scary um, in a lot of ways. We don't have time to talk about all those things, but um, our country is changing. Our world is changing. Chapter 11, if you're there with me, say amen. amen. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Uh, these have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls, on the, uh, falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And so, Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. And, Lord, I just I praise you for, uh, Lord, uh, your sovereignty, writing these things ahead of time so that when we see them, we could know the times that we live in. You loved us enough to do that. And so we thank you for it. Now, Lord, I pray, I ask 
more than ever before, that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would make it very, very alive to us, Lord God, and that you would make it clear to us as we study, and that you would put in every heart in this room a real hunger to know more of it, so that in these times, Lord God, we can turn to the everlasting truth and not be concerned about all of the lies and deception that are out there, Lord God, but be informed, uh, Lord, in, in, in real time by your scripture that we may bring glory to you and how we live, but also, Lord, that we would uh, be able to lead others to your truth. We, we love you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so as we dive in now, Back into the book of Revelation, if you remember, we're in what uh, I called um, kind of that parenthetical insert, being inside the parentheses, if you will, uh, which is inserted between the sixth trumpet sounding and the seventh trumpet sounding. Remember, the seventh trumpet, seventh trumpet will sound as we get into verse 15 of this chapter. The sixth trumpet has already sound. And when that sixth trumpet sound, the angels that were uh, imprisoned by the great river Euphrates were unleashed to lead a massive army. And they killed one-third of the population of the earth. And remember, uh, at this point, three and a half years roughly into the tribulation, 50% of the population of the earth that went into the tribulation has been killed through the wrath of God that's being unleashed upon the earth. And, uh, and so that is a massive number of people. We estimated that if that were, um, if, the, if the earth went into the tribulation period somewhere around 2030, for instance, uh, estimated 8.5 billion people on the planet, that would be uh, as many as four and a quarter billion people dead in that little period of time. Now, of course, that doesn't account for the reduction of a population if the, uh, when the rapture happens, but just to throw some numbers at you, that's a lot of people dead, and they still were not repenting. But in, in this, the, uh, the angel takes John now and begins to show him some other things that were happening. One was the mighty angel who came down in chapter 10, putting his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, putting his hand to God and proclaiming with a loud voice that thing there will be delay no longer. It's about to be wrapped up. Y'all remember that? Then John had to go to the angel and take the little book out of his hand and eat the little book um, just like Ezekiel did. And then he said to him in uh, chapter 10, verse 11, he says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Then immediately John says to us then in verse 1, I was given a reed, notice, like a measuring rod. Very interesting that it's a reed like a measuring rod, not a measuring rod, but like it. So there's a picture of something that he's trying to get us to understand. Um, a measuring rod in ancient times would be where they would take a stick or something and cut it at a certain measurement so that you could then use it as a measuring rod going forth. Some of you jack leg carpenters understand this because you might cut one two by four exactly the length you want it, and now you don't need to measure anymore. You just line the two by fours up and make your mark and keep cutting um, or, or whatever. You know, it's similar. My grandfather used to have this wind out one that he had, it's old school. I think it's still around. At the barn somewhere, and, and you have to retract it back. It was like an accordion almost. Um, now I got one. I could probably extend all the way to that wall and hit a button, and it comes back to me. You know, <laughs> It's amazing. Um, one day you just hold your iPhone up. I think you can almost do this. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. See? The works of our hands. So, but this is so it's, a, it's like a measuring rod in that it's going to measure something. 
But it's not a measuring rod. He's using language to kind of help us understand. I was given a reed kind of like a measuring rod, but there's something else going on. And I say that because notice what he says next. He says, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. We'll come back to that. The altar. We'll come back to that. And those who worship there. And the reason that I find that interesting is because one of the three things that's being measured are the people who are worshiping at this temple where this altar is, which is interesting because how can you measure people? Um, How does that actually happen? What is actually being said or given to us? Well, first, I I want you to understand before we dive in too far that um, you can actually do that to some degree in the sense that we do that. You know, when you think about this word measure, Uh, In the Greek, it kind of gives us a couple implications. One is measuring something as far as space and distance, which the normal use of the word would imply, of course. And you can do that possibly with with the temple itself and the altar. But I think there's something else going on because the other use of this word is to judge according to any rule or standard or to estimate based upon a rule or standard. We do that ourselves. Jesus warned about it in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, Jesus warned us about making a measurement. Notice it says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, we measure one another in judgment sometimes, and which is not to be the case. We're not told, we're told to judge not. We can examine fruit, but I can't judge. I can't measure you because I'm not the one who has the authority to do that. We're all sinners. Amen. I can examine fruit and exhort according to the word of God, but God is the only one that has a heaven and a hell to send anyone to and can make a final judgment. So we know that, but people like to use that. Don't judge me. Well, listen, if you walk like a duck and quack like a duck, I'm simply saying the fruit seems to point to the fact that you're a duck. That's all I'm saying. I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm just kind of saying I'm observing some fruit and it looks like lemons and not oranges. That's all. That's that's just exhortation. (laughs) But I don't need to condemn. In other words, I need to have a heart of, of love to restore always. But we also use this in making comparisons. We like to lift ourselves up sometimes. Paul warned against that in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, speaking of those other teachers, false teachers, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, some like to compare themselves to others in order to lift themselves up. And, and, and Paul's saying, look, we're all sinners and God's the standard. His word is the standard. Amen. We know that. But we use, we measure one another. We measure ourselves by others. We like to do these kind of things um, all the time. Well, here it seems as though God is telling John, I want you to measure something. And I don't want to know really how many feet. It's not really concerning to God. I don't believe how big or small this temple is. And did they actually get the numbers right? Does it line up? That's not what he's, called. he's interested in here. He's interested in something else. He's in th- interested in the authenticity. I screwed that up first service, so I had to put it in my notes and fix it. <laughs> of the worship of the people, which I find, honestly, not to be a point of judgment, but a point of mercy. Not a point of judgment, 
but a point of mercy. Well, why do I say that? First of all, because he calls it the temple of God, and it's not so much. Follow what I'm saying. We know that currently, I want you to nod or raise your hands if you agree with what I'm about to say. We know that currently as we live, there is no temple of God on the earth. Amen. That's good. I'm glad you did that. Especially if you formerly were a Catholic, you must know that not only is there no temple, there is no um, real authentic priesthood on earth today. We know that too, right? Okay. Um, so that's all an abomination. So there is no temple today. Yet here in chapter 11, verse 1, we see a temple. Now, here's what we know in the history of the temple. The temple was first built by Solomon because David wanted to build the temple, but he was not allowed because he was a man of war. But God said, you can't build the temple. Your son will build the temple. David says, I ain't out of this thing, God. I love you so much. I'm going to prepare for him to build the temple. So I'm going to collect as much gold and stuff that's needed as I can and make sure the treasury and the storehouse is ready when he begins to do it. So Solomon builds the temple. And it was a glorious temple. God actually respected the temple because he showed up and his glory was so thick that the priests couldn't even get nothing done. It was just, I mean, they worship and they dedicated the thing to God. Y'all remember that, right? Okay. Well, we know that Israel went into rebellion and because of their rebellion and their idolatry, God destroyed that temple through his servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. So then 70 years later, he used his other servant, Cyrus, to release them to try it again, and they went back under uh, Ezra's uh, lead, and they began to lay the foundations for what we will call temple number two. And and, and, and the day they laid the foundations of that temple, there was a, a, everybody got excited and began to cheer. All the young men were like, man, this is amazing. We're going to have a temple. And they looked, and the old men were crying, and they thought just because they were, they were old, and old people a lot of times express their joy through crying, I guess I'm getting old then. <laughs> they thought the old men were happy, but the scripture says, no, the old men were weeping because the found, when they looked at that little puny foundation, it was nothing in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple, which they lost through rebellion. And they were realizing that. And so that temple was later finished when, and you can see this in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah, the high priest's name was Joshua and the the mayor, if you will, the ruler of, the, of Jerusalem's name was Zerubbabel, and they were being encouraged to finish the temple, which they did, and that's temple number two. Later on, Herod shows up, and Herod says, this temple does not measure up to the glory of, our, of, of, of the past of this nation. I want to build a new temple. You can read the historian Josephus says that the Jews like no Herod because if you build this temple, um, then if you tear this temple down to build another one and you can't finish the process, process we're going to be without a temple. So he says, I will touch nothing until I have everything to do it. And they allowed. And so Herod literally had to tear down and build up the foundation and make it grander to rebuild. So some say Herod's temple was the third temple. Others say it was the expansion of the second temple. It doesn't matter how you want to look at it. That was the final work done on the temple. And so we have, if you will, temple number two or two point one or whatever you want to call it. But because of rebellion and sin and a refusal to be able to discern the times that they were living in, Israel missed their Messiah. So therefore, Jesus says, you should see my face no more. 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From now on, your house is left to you desolate. The, the disciple says, Lord, we don't really know what you're talking about. Look at the beauty of this temple. He says, you see all of these stones, not one will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And 40 years later, that prophecy occurred in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed temple number 2.1, whatever, 2.5, I don't know. So it was destroyed. And so today, there is no temple. Yet Daniel, which we don't have time to get into, chapter 9, look at it in your own time, and Daniel's prophecy he talks about the fact that seven weeks are determined. In fact, I think it's prudent because Daniel, as my chiropractor would say, that the, that the spinal column, the backbone is, is so important because everything ties into it. So Daniel's prophecy is the spinal column of eschatology or prophecy so that we can understand where we are and where we're headed. So let's glance at Daniel chapter 9 really quick. I think it's extremely important. Y'all doing okay? All right, it's, you got to kind of sometimes do this. We live in a time where we need to understand it. Daniel, Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 9. In chapter 9, Daniel is praying. If you read the beginning of the chapter, he's praying to God, and, he re- and, he's, and he's actually repenting for sin, his and the nations, uh, because he's saying, God, it's time for something to happen. He, he knows Jeremiah's prophecy that after 70 years, they should be able to go, uh, they should be released and able to go back home. So he's reading all of this, and I want to pick it up in chapter 24 of Daniel chapter 9. If you're there, say amen. So the, the angel, he's given this prophecy, 70 weeks are determined. Now, this word weeks, uh, weeks is a, um, a it's a, uh, classification of seven units, if you will, of which we know mostly is seven days. Seven days makes a week, right? Okay, that's how we use it. Also, biblically, though, it also applies to seven years. In in the book of Genesis, Jacob has to fulfill his week to get his wife because he was cheated. So he actually had to work two weeks to get his wife, but it was seven years he had to work for his uncle to get, get the wife that he desired. And so it's applied as weeks in the scripture as well. And we also believe, as I've been telling you, it can be applied in thousands of years, if you will, or millennia. Seven millennia would make a week also, if you will, but we don't spend time there now. So seven weeks, meaning seven units of seven years or 490 years are determined, notice, for your people, Daniel. Well, who are Daniel's people? Israel. Y'all okay? Okay. Israel is people's, the Jews as Daniel's people, and for your holy city, who are there? Who's there? Where's their holy city? Jerusalem. Now y'all are awake. Great. Notice to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. I want to spend time here, but I don't have time to do that. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Everything being covered. Um, sin meaning we are in sin because of the fall of Adam. Transgression is when you knowingly and willingly sin anyway. It's rebellion. So 70 weeks or 490 years are determined to finish up all this stuff and to even seal up prophecy because we won't need prophecy any longer when this is done. So there are 490 years and it all be wrapped up. 
well, how, how do you start the clock for that? Well, you go on and notice he says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 weeks. Seven weeks, we believe, is how long it took them to, to, to get the walls of Jerusalem built. And then the 62 on top of that until Messiah came. So the command was given in 449 B.C. to begin to build the walls of Jerusalem. And so we believe that it came to an end of 69 weeks when Messiah the Prince showed up. Well, when did he show up? It seems to calculate right up until the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We talk about it every year on Palm Sunday when he comes in on a donkey. You follow me? Okay, that's the end of 69 weeks. After the 62 weeks, meaning that classification, so after the 7 and then the 62, so 69 total, Messiah shall be cut off or Messiah shall be, we know now, crucified. But not for himself because he knew no sin, but because we are sinners, he was crucified for us. Not for himself, but for us. Then he says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary in A.D. 70 was the Romans. Okay, and Daniel talked about where the Romans fit in the world history. They were the, the final empire uh, the legs before the, the last day's empire, which would be a global uh, empire that would be divided by 10 units, if you will. We won't get into that right now. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Um, desolations, we'll talk about desolations in just a second. So then he says in verse 27, then he, he who? The prince. What prince? Antichrist. Okay? So Antichrist will be of the people who destroyed the city. Okay, which is the Romans. So Antichrist will be of the Romans or of that world empire that we know as Rome, but it's, it's more broad than just Rome as we know of Rome. This final global empire, Antichrist, will be of this empire, and he will confirm, in verse 27, a covenant with many for one week. He won't just confirm a covenant with the Jews, but he will have a covenant with many because it will take a covenant with many in order to have enough peace to do what he has to get done which is what? Well, it says in the middle of the week, notice it says, but in the middle of the week, so that final week, that, that final week of seven years, in the middle of it, or three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, remember, the church is this little insert between the 69th and the 70th week, right? Y'all understand? Okay, so the church is just sitting there, and, and harvest is coming in. Gospel is being preached. Harvest is coming in. Mystery to the Old Testament prophets. They didn't really realize what the church was, so they couldn't write about it clearly. But the church is there, and the church will be there until the, the uh, times of the Gentiles or the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Church then gets removed, like John being caught up in heaven in, in Revelation chapter 4. Church out of the way. Then the last week begins, and in the middle of the week, he will notice... Bring an end to off sacrifice and offerings, which they're not even happening yet. In other words, a temple will be rebuilt during this last seven, this last week, and the Jews will start their sacrifice and their worship again, and he will bring an end to it. Um, and on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So Daniel says, 
70 weeks, 490 years are determined to wrap all of this up. We go back over to Revelation. Y'all just bear with me. I thought I was going to blow up yesterday, honestly, trying to prepare for this just because I was in so many different books of the Bible at one time, just enjoying everything that God was saying. And so tribulation period begins, Revelation chapter 6, rider of the white horse, who we now know to be the Antichrist. He's, he's brought everybody to a place of peace. Everybody's happy. But remember, John, uh, Paul, excuse me, warned us that when they say peace, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Um, but we are not in that category of people, he says, Second Thessalon- uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So in the middle of that week, he is going to do something to cause worship to end. And Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which Daniel spoke of standing in the holy place, then flee to the, to the hills, get out of Jerusalem. That's what he said in, 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 in the Olivet Discourse, particularly in Luke chapter 21. He said, standing in the, in, the, in the holy place. When I first used to read it as a new believer, I'm thinking, oh, he's talking about something Daniel said when Daniel was standing in the holy place. The more I read the Bible, I realized Daniel was never standing in the holy place, one, because he wasn't high priest. And when he was writing, there was was no holy place because Nebuchadnezzar had already destroyed the temple back in Jerusalem. So then it can only mean that something will be standing in the holy place. And that's what Daniel was alluding to. And Jesus is also alluding to what is that thing? Well, Paul is the one that makes it perfectly clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he says that the lawless one, the man of sin, the Antichrist, he himself will go in the temple of God and sit in the temple of God and declare himself to be God that he should be worshipped. And that's when Israel is going to realize we just messed up because we trusted this guy. We were so excited to get a temple, we got duped. They're going to kind of understand that because, listen, here's what it means. The only person that goes into the holy place is the high priest once a year to sprinkle blood and worship. And he goes in very carefully. Antichrist will walk in the the holy place of the temple, rip the curtain open, and he's going to sit. If they have an ark there, if they make one and whatever, he's going to literally, I believe, sit on the, the mercy seat and declare himself as God. The biggest abomination that you could ever imagine. Um, And the only reason the earth won't just explode at that moment is because this isn't God's temple anyway. So when we look at verse 1 again, let's look at it. It says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angels stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And you got to understand, this is not God's temple, but he calls it the temple of God. and and, And he says, measure what's going on there. And as I'm thinking about this, it becomes very clear to me. That God has a merciful heart for his nation because the, the seventh, that final week is also called a time of Jacob's trouble. This whole period of time is focused on bringing Israel to salvation. When the church leaves, then blindness is lifted off of the Jew, according to the book of Romans. And so God is now dealing with them only. And so even though they've built the temple that he's never going to dwell in, he is, because he loves them, he is evaluating what's happening there because he knows that some of the people are there with the excitement to truly worship their God. And he has a heart for them. And so he says, measure it. He takes a measurement of it. God can literally measure worship. See, God can look at a society and he can measure it. 
And he can tell when the cup of indignation, sin, has filled up on a society. And then he pours out his cup of wrath. God gave me the picture of a scale. And so on one side of the scale, the cup of indignation, excuse me, the cup of iniquity is filling up and filling up. And the scale is going down. And the only way to balance this is the cup of wrath has to be filled up until they balance and then wrath is poured out. That's just a picture I got from thinking through the whole thing. God knows. He said in the book of the, in, in the Old Testament, in Genesis to Abraham, that the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full yet. So I'm going to give them 400 years. I'm going to have you and your people, your seed will be down in Egypt while I'm allowing them time to repent. But I know they want, but I'm going to give them that time because I'm a merciful, loving God. And even if I get a few to repent, it's good enough for me. And so he allows that time. So God always knows when it's time, when there's nothing else that he can redeem out of the society. We are headed in a direction in America where there's going to be nothing left to redeem, and we're leading the rest of the world. When pedophilia becomes the norm, I think we're pretty close. And so he knows that. And so here's the mercy of God. He, he takes a test, if you will. He evaluates what's going on in this new temple that's being built. Now, you even see that in verse 2. He says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread it, the holy city, underfoot for 42 months. Don't measure that. That's the area where the Gentiles dwell. It's not necessary to measure it anyway because there's nothing going on there of any any importance to me, God says. Don't leave that out. It's given to the Gentiles for 42 months, which is the equivalent of three and a half years, okay? I believe the abomination of desolation, the scriptures tell us, happens midpoint the tribulation and the Gentiles. At that point, I believe that the temple gets finished just before the midpoint. Worship begins. Then Antichrist shows up and calls himself God. You can't worship your God anymore. You got to worship me. And so this is what I think is happening here. Now, let's back up for a moment. Well, there is no temple. So you can say, well, we must be safe then because ain't no temple there now. So we're good. We got some time. Here's the thing we need to understand. Well, first, why is there no, why haven't the Jews built the temple? It's not for lack of effort. Right now, there's a minority in Israel that's trying to build the temple. Now, the majority of Israelis are secular. They could care less about a temple. They just want prosperity for their nation. But there's a minority of Jews that's actually trying to build the temple. They even have the Temple Institute, and they've prepared everything that's necessary to begin worship in the temple, um, down to all the utensils, all the priest robes, all the, the things that are necessary to carry it out. They are ready and have confirmed that it will take them less than a year to build the temple as soon as they have the, the go-ahead to build the temple. And so this is something right now that could be done. You know, even right now as we live, I'm going to pause for a moment. Y'all Okay. Okay, even this year, there's a lot right now happening in Israel because um, President Trump named Jerusalem the headquarters, if you will, or the capital city of the nation of Israel, and he's the first uh, government leader to do that, okay? Um, Now, that's good news. He also developed a peace plan, which is more robust and more detailed than any peace plan that was previously written. And, um, and Netanyahu, the Jews are excited about it, and everybody's excited about it. And, and, and Israel began, if you were paying attention, you might have missed it because of the coronavirus. You might have missed the whole thing. 
but the Jews were getting ready to annex because this new peace plan allows them to expand their territories and take over other lands that actually belong to them. And they were about to start the annexation process and everything came to a screeching halt. Why? Well, because their, their number one ally is worried about getting reelected right now. So he's gone quiet a little bit about it. Now, the Jews are kind of stuck. Because if they build that thing, if they annex, excuse me, if they annex that land without their number one ally with them and backing them up, it's going to be some, some rough times. And it's going to be war in the Middle East. And they're already threatened by war all the time. And so they don't want to do that. They want to have that support. Um, and they could say, well, we know he, he's going to, after the election, support us, so let's get started. The problem is they're concerned because if Biden wins the election, there's a good chance that they'll lose all of that support. And then they'll be on their own trying to annex that land and everyone else will be against them. So now they're stuck trying to see what's going to happen in November. <laughs> and so it's always a volatile situation in the Middle East. You follow me? Always a volatile situation in the Middle East. So with that being said, even though some want to build the temple, they can't yet. There are other Jews who say we shouldn't be building the temple. Messiah is going to do it when he comes. I agree with them. They're right. But there's going to be one because Scripture says so. Okay? You all with me? And the biggest reason why they are not building the temple is because the place where they believe the temple should be built is the one part of Jerusalem that they do not have control over. We call it the Temple Mount, and it's in the hands of the Muslims. Therefore, they don't have the right right now to build on the Temple Mount. One option is if they were to discover that the temple doesn't belong on what we call the Temple Mount anyway, but somewhere else in Jerusalem, then they could just build a thing. And there are a lot of scholars who, as they read Josephus and Eusebius and some of the historians and look at the geography, have come to the, the conclusion that the Temple Mount that we call the Temple Mount is actually not the Temple Mount. Um, the Bordeaux Pilgrim wrote hundreds of years ago when he surveyed Jerusalem and he looked and he saw and he said that the only thing he saw was that old fort of the Romans, which would be the Antonio Fortress, which Josephus says was so large that it held not only a legion, not only uh, uh, a bunch of Roman soldiers, but it was like a city unto itself. Josephus says, I, I, I suppose it would be composed of three cities because they had to have stuff to live and barracks and, and all this kind of stuff and, and the host officials and all that kind of stuff. So it was a massive, massive uh, compound. So when you look at the model of the city of Jerusalem, what they say is Antonio Fortress is not according to history. And then with all the archaeological evidence that seems to, a lot of people say, place the actual temple in the city of David. So all of that could, and you can do your own research, point to the fact that the reason they don't uh, know where to build the temple is because they're going on tradition of people who came back hundreds of years after all of it had been destroyed. And because Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, they don't know where the temple should be anyway. A lot of people are starting to believe that, which means that if it should be built in the city of David where they had the only source of water that was necessary for the sacrifices and where they found stables and olive press and Hezekiah's tunnel, and even recently they've dug up more excavations of things that relate to the king, even south of what they call the old city, if that's the case, nothing would stop them from building the temple instantly. I don't think that's going to happen, though. And the reason I say that, and I'll come back to it in a minute, is because look at it again. Verse 2, he says, don't measure, 
Don't measure the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. What this could mean is that the Antichrist is able to bring in this peace and confirm this covenant and actually figure out a way to divide the current temple mount and build that temple on the north side of it. And in the outer courts would be the Dome of the Rock still there. Um, As crazy as it may sound, that could be what is being described here. We don't really know. Um, And I'll say this, none of it really matters. And here's why I say it. The temple that's going to be built next is going to be destroyed when Jesus returns. Why do I say that? Well, think about geography. Some of you have been to Israel. Others of you understand the map. The Bible says in Zechariah, when Jesus returns, he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. The mountain will split in two. Part of the mountain will be moved to the north. The other part of the mountain will be moved to the south. And a great valley will run through from east to west from the great sea Mediterranean to the other sea, Dead Sea. If you know the geography of Jerusalem and you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look east, what are you looking at? What we call the Temple Mount, okay? Which means that a valley is going to go through where? Straight through the Temple Mount. So if they build it on the Temple Mount, it doesn't matter. It's going to get destroyed anyway. In fact, both Zechariah and Ezekiel talk about to the south will be in the millennium, the structure of the city to the south part when the mountain splits. And then south there would be kind of where we already know the city of David actually existed will be where the city will be and most likely the temple. So really, it doesn't matter at all. All I want you to know is that it can happen quickly. Look how quickly the world has changed. It can happen very quickly. A temple can go up in less than a year. So we're, we're not far from these things being able to happen. In fact, it's just a matter of when God wants to do this. Now, verse 3, we're going to tie up and bring grace and mercy into this. Verse 3 says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That is three and a half years. So there are two witnesses that will prophesy in Jerusalem for three and a half years. And what is their prophecy all about? Well, they're clothed in sackcloth, which from an Old Testament perspective is always a picture of humbleness and repentance towards God, crying out towards God, calling upon him for help. And so they will be prophesying a message of repentance and turning to God. Now, who are these two? Well, I'll get to that in a minute, but I want you to fully understand their ministry. Notice in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So whenever you don't understand something, as we've learned in the book of Revelation, if it doesn't make sense, it's just because you need to find a way to allow Scripture most often to interpret Scripture. Y'all with me? Yeah. Am I giving you too much? No. Okay. Right? Take notes. It's time, to, it's time to have this stuff committed to heart. So if you search these things, you land in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, you have when the, when the second temple was being built, you have a massive challenge. There was a, a mountain of rubble from where Solomon's temple was torn down, and they were trying to get through it, and it was difficult. And the people kept getting delayed. And so the Lord was trying to encourage them. And so the high priest's name then was Joshua, whose name means Jehovah is salvation. The, the ruler of Jerusalem, the secular ruler, if you will, the mayor, his name was Zerubbabel, whose name means sown in Babylon. 
And these two guys are working to lead the people to get the temple rebuilt. And in chapter 3 of Zechariah, God speaks to Joshua, whose name means Jehovah's salvation, and says to him, a branch will come, and he's going to build the temple. It's going to happen. But that branch is speaking of Jesus Christ, who will build the actual temple when he returns. Okay, you with me? In chapter 4, there's a prophecy given to Zechariah, and it speaks of two things. Zechariah sees the vision of a lampstand, two olive trees on both sides, supplying the lampstand with continual flow of olive oil, okay? And usually it's a large, long process to get olive oil so that the high priest can go into the temple and keep the menorah going, okay? So this picture is amazing in and of itself because this picture is where it would normally take a whole bunch of people to process the olives, to get the oil, to make it into the oil that's necessary to be used in the temple so that the, the priest every day could go in there and trim the wick and put more oil in to keep the light burning, which represents the presence of God in the midst of his people. You with me? So he sees this vision of these two olive trees right beside it, constantly providing a constant drip of oil so the light never runs out. Basically, it's the picture, right? And Zechariah is saying, what is this? The angel says to him in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, look at it. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. What was the word to Zerubbabel? Not by might, excuse me, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, he said, Zerubbabel, you need to understand that God is the one that's going to get this done, not all your effort. And then the second part of the prophecy was found in the same chapter, verse 14, on the screen, I think I have it, where it says, so he asked the same question again, and he says, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And it's very interesting, I find, as the Jews here in the tribulation first part are so excited about getting this new temple built, which this man who showed up, who's helped them get peace, and they think that he's probably the Messiah, and he's getting the temple built, and they are so excited. And these two witnesses are there showing up in sackcloth, prophesying the whole time, turn to the Lord and repent. And they're not listening because they got their Messiah, who they believe is their Messiah, who's actually Antichrist, helping them build a temple. Yet the two witnesses are standing there who are God's anointed ones saying to them, listen, he is the one that will do it. You don't even have to do this because when Messiah comes, he will build it himself. And they're not listening. They're moving forward with the Antichrist and they get it built and they're going to start worshiping. And he's going to walk in the holy place and say, I'm God. And that's when they're going to say, oh, snap. And they're going to flee to the hills or, or the wilderness, which we'll get into in chapter 12. And listen, this is how bad it is. You got to catch the scene. We're, we're, we got a minute and, oh, it's in the red. Oh, because I got a minute and 40 seconds. Listen very quickly. I'll wrap this up. Really quick. If anyone wants to harm them, verse 5, fire proceeds uh, uh, from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. These two guys, verse 6, also have the power to shut up heaven so that it will not rain, so no rain will fall in the days of their prophecy. They have the power over water, notice, to turn it to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. In other words, for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, they will prophesy 
No one will be able to stop them. And I believe their prophecy is warning the Jews that they're, you're fooling around with the wrong person trying to build this temple. I believe that's what this is going to be all about. And they don't want to listen to him. And let me tell you why they don't want to listen. The most dangerous time in a society is when people have gotten so far away from God, they don't even want to hear from him. And uh, it was Jeremiah, and this is something that's developing in my heart, and I don't know when I will use it, but in the book of Jeremiah, the people don't want to hear the word. Jeremiah tells the people, this temple that you have here is going to be destroyed, and all the furnishings are going to be carried off to Babylon. The other prophets were saying, no, this temple's not going to be destroyed, and the people who've already been carried captive are going to be released, and they're going to come back. All the false prophets were telling them, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right, y'all. And Jeremiah said to one of the prophets, Hananiah, who was accusing Jeremiah of being wrong, Jeremiah said, look, man, if your prophecy is right, amen, because it sounds good, but this is what God is telling me. And in fact, Jeremiah was right. So Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Jerusalem and said, hey, those of you who have already been carried captive, stop listening to the false prophets because still, they still had their bags packed like they were going back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah said this, hey, unpack your bags, let your sons and daughters get married and have children and increase, pray for the peace of the city you live in, which is Babylon, because you're going to be there for 70 years. And then he gives this famous word that we know because God, God has thoughts towards you. He knows the thoughts he has towards you, thoughts of, of, of peace to give you a future and a hope. Y'all remember those words, right? Okay. He said that in the midst of that prophecy. And see, this is the thing. None of them wanted to hear him. So you know what they did? The prophets and the priests and the people said, Jeremiah, you're going to be put to death. I'm going to kill the prophet of God because they don't want to hear the word of God because they already have what they want, what they desire. And see, what needs to happen in a society is this. No matter what people want, and no matter what they desire, this must always be true in every man a liar. And see, the thing is, we, those of us who know God, when this, when this convicts us because it goes against what we desire, that means that it's time for us to humble ourselves and repent. Amen? Amen. That's where the world is today, and that's where America is today. But America, America is being destroyed and changed right before our eyes, and that time is coming. And that's why the word of God from the church to America, because that's where we live, needs to be very crystal clear. There is no longer time for us to be wavering and concerned about what people think. We need to speak the truth to people while there's still opportunity. Because what happens as immorality builds and as immorality grows and as, it gets, as, the, as the cup of sin fills up more and more and more, what happens is that people's hearts grow harder and harder and they're less able to hear the word of God. Now, let me finish this up. Now, because this is the big question. I'm already over time, so we'll, we'll finish this next week. But the big question everybody has is, well, who are these two witnesses during the tribulation period? And people speculate all types of ways. Some believe that it's Enoch and Elijah because neither one of those two guys ever died. Remember, Enoch was taken. He was not because he, his testimony was that he, he pleased God, so God took him. Okay, so Enoch was the first one raptured out. Okay, um, then Elijah also raptured up, if you will, caught up into heaven and never died. 
And so some believe that because the Bible says it's appointed on the man to die once and then judgment, so it must be these two guys. But I want you to know, if anybody needs to leave and serve, I understand. You need to know this. The Bible does not say that every single human being has to die and then face judgment or whatever judgment they're going to be standing before. Because if that's the case, then we can't believe in a rapture. Because Paul says we shall not all sleep, but we all must be changed. So everybody ain't going to die. We know that, right? Okay, so it doesn't mean that it has to be Enoch and Elisha. But Scripture gives us hints. If you look at the power that's given to them for their ministry, it's more resemblant of two other guys. Let's go through it really quick. If anyone wants to harm them, verse 5, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. That's called a prophetic dragon. Some of y'all ain't catching. Okay, so um, y'all are asleep today. In other words, they have the power to call down fire from heaven. And when I think about the prophets, who was able to call fire down from heaven? Yeah, Moses to some degree and definitely Elijah. Elijah did it three times when, when the, the, the soldiers came out to him and he, he called fire down from heaven and consumed them. Fire even came down from heaven and consumed the, the sacrifice when he went up against the 450 prophets of Baal. So we know Elijah can do that and Moses as well and devour their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. These also have the power to shut up uh, heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, we know that Elisha prayed and for that there would be no rain when King Ahab and it was no rain. And then when he prayed for rain, it did rain. Um, and they have the power over water to turn them to blood. Who was able to turn water to blood? Moses, yes. And the reason why Moses, uh, his, his plagues that he was unfolding before them, people were not listening because Janus and Jambres, the two guys that were working for Satan, were able to manipulate to some degree what Moses was doing, but they were not able to stop what Moses was doing from coming. You follow me? But they were able to deceive people because that's what the enemy does. He gives them enough to keep them strung along, but they never, ever, ever back up and, and pay attention to the truth. Remember, because they, they caused a stick to be turned to a snake just like Moses did, but Moses' snake ate theirs if you go back and read it. Anyway, let's stay focused. Moses can do that as well. And then to strike the earth with all plagues like Moses did as often as they desire. So for three and a half years, they got the freedom to do this every time they want. Nobody can touch them. Now, here's what we know. It most likely is Elijah and Moses because the Bible talks about a prophet like Moses coming, and the Bible says that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Jesus even said, talked about this. He says, well, you know, when they asked about Elijah coming, he said, well, if you can receive it, John, he did come in the form of John the Baptist, but he must come again before me. Jews believe that because even in their Seder feast or their, their Passover, they left an empty chair for Elijah, right? So I believe that we get the clue on Mount Transfiguration when two guys show up to talk to Jesus. And if you remember, it was Moses and Elijah. And the interesting thing to me is that when Peter woke up out of his sleep, Peter, James, and John, they looked and they recognized that it was Moses, Elijah. Moses and Elijah standing there talking to Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, which means that the Jews during the tribulation, we don't know. They may actually be wrestling with the fact that they can recognize that this is Moses and Elijah. We don't know. We know that these two guys, Moses represents all of the law. When you talk about the law in the New Testament, sometimes they just call it Moses and the prophets. You ain't even got to say the law because Moses is the writer. They know that. 
And then Elisha, of course, represents the prophet. So all of their scripture represented in these two men testifying to them. And I'm believing, this doesn't say it here, but I'm believing that their, their prophecy is that you need to repent and turn to God. This is not your Messiah. He's coming back. And they won't believe it until they see it. And so a lot of people today are scoffing at the fact that we, the church, are saying Jesus is coming soon and you need to get ready. And people want to say all the time, well, come on, Pastor Kevin. You know, everybody's been preaching that. Pastor Chuck was preaching that and he's dead. So what? Come on. How long y'all going to say this stuff? You know, that's what people are saying. People believe that. And I just challenge you to study the scriptures and you come to the conclusion that I keep telling you that we are the most unique generation of the Christian church. The only generation to have seen all of the things that need to come in place before these final things happen. We're the only generation to have seen all of them happen. And we're at the brink of it at any moment. God can do this. He, at any moment, he can snatch the church out of here. At any moment, he can remove the restraining, which is the Holy Spirit in the church on the earth. And then Antichrist will come to full. The only thing holding Antichrist back is the presence of the church on the earth. And when we're gone, he will be revealed and these things will unfold. And if you watch what's coming next, Jesus has already warned us. Persecution, before we get out of here, persecution, we will see that. Um, many will be offended, made to stumble, apostasy, and many will betray one another. They're going to turn on one another. They're going to turn you in even maybe for having a home fellowship. <laughs> They're going to turn on one another, and then more false teaching will arise and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, it's going to be hard to love. You know what breaks my heart more than anything else during the time we live in right now? What breaks my heart is because I do love people, it does hurt when people are afraid of me because of the wrong, you know, I'm just being honest now, okay? Um, respectfully, I understand why, but it's hard. It's hard. It just is, you know, because um, you just want to love, you know, you just want to be, you want to connect. You want to be able to hear what somebody's saying and read their lips and stuff like that. So it's a, diff it's a difficult season that we live in even now. Um, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm called to do if I didn't tell you that it's going to be worse before the Lord comes for the church. That's the truth. You know, we don't have the luxury of living in normal times where we could come to church and just kind of like enjoy, enjoy the word at a certain level and then just, you know, go on with the rest of our week. We don't have that freedom any longer. We need to have our eyes open. We need to be devouring the scripture and we need to be preparing our hearts. Let's close. Father, we do thank you today for Allowing us to be here, Lord, I pray you would redeem the time now and be with us as we go out of this place in our homes, our cars, our, the marketplaces, wherever we go this week. Be with us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. God bless you.